Hello and welcome to Halfwit History, a show that explores poor decisions made in history. They say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This is your host, Ted, and today we will be talking about the Great Leap Forward. The worst catastrophe in China's history was the Great Famine of 1958 and 1962. To this day, the Chinese Communist Party has not fully acknowledged the disastrous effects of the Great Leap Forward. Perhaps one of the most covered up disasters of the 20th century. Launched in 1958 by the famous chairman Mao Zedong as an economic and social campaign that aimed to rapidly transform the country from an agrarian economy into a socialist society through rapid industrialization and collectivization. Chief changes in the lives of rural Chinese included the incremental introduction of mandatory agricultural collectivization. Private farming was prohibited, and those engaged in it were persecuted and labeled counter-revolutionaries. Restrictions on rural people were enforced through public struggle sessions and social pressure, although people also experienced forced labor. Rural industrialization officially became a priority of the campaign, and it saw its development aborted by the mistakes of the Great Leap Forward. So let's get into the background. How did we get into this mess? Well, in October of 1949, after the defeat of the Kuomintang, or the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Chinese Communist Party proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Immediately, landlords and wealthier peasants had their land holdings forcefully redistributed to poorer peasants. In agricultural sectors, crops deemed by the party to be full of evil, such as opium, were destroyed and replaced with crops such as rice. Within the party, there were major debates about redistribution. A moderate faction within the party led by Politburo member Liu Xiaoqi argued that change should be gradual and any collectivization of the peasantry should wait until industrialization, which could provide the agricultural machinery for mechanized farming. A more radical faction led by Mao Zedong argued that the best way to finance industrialization was for the government to take control of agriculture, thereby establishing a monopoly over grain distribution and supply. This would allow the state to buy at a low price and sell much higher thus raising the capital necessary for the industrialization of the country. Before 1949, peasants had farmed their own pockets of land and observed traditional practices, festivals, banquets, and paying homage to their ancestors. It was realized that Mao's policy of using state monopoly on agriculture to finance industrialization would be unpopular with the peasants. Therefore, it was proposed that the peasants should be brought under party control by the establishment of agricultural collective, which would also facilitate the sharing of tools and draft animals. This policy was gradually pushed through between 1949 and 1958 in response to the immediate policy needs, first by establishing mutual aid teams of 5 to 15 households, then, in 1953, elementary agricultural cooperatives of 20 to 40 households, then, from 1956, in higher cooperatives of 100 to 300 families. From 1954 onward, peasants were encouraged to form and join collective farming associations, which would supposedly increase their efficiency without robbing them of their own land or restricting their livelihoods. By 1958, private ownership was entirely abolished and households all over China were forced into state-operated communes. Mao insisted that the communes must produce more grain for the cities and earn foreign exchange from exports. These reforms were generally unpopular with the peasants and usually implemented by summoning them to meetings and making them stay there for days and sometimes weeks until they, quote, voluntarily agreed to join the collective, though that should be taken with a grain of salt. The first experimental commune was established at Cheyashan in Henan in April of 1958. 
Here for the first time, private plots were entirely abolished and communal kitchens were introduced. At the Politburo meetings in August of 1958, it was decided that these people's communes would become the new form of economic and political organization throughout rural China. By the end of the year, approximately 25,000 communes had been set up, with an average of 5,000 households each. Communes were relatively self-sufficient cooperatives, where wages and money were replaced by work points. The commune system was aimed at maximizing production for provisioning the cities and constructing offices, factories, schools, and social insurance systems for urban dwelling workers, cadres, and officials. Citizens in rural areas who criticized the system were labeled as dangerous. Escape was also difficult or impossible, and those who attempted were subjected to party-orchestrated public struggle, which further jeopardized their survival. Besides agriculture, communes also incorporated some light industry and construction projects. Mao saw grain and steel as the key pillars of economic development. He forecast that within 15 years of the start of the Great Leap, China's industrial output would surpass that of the United Kingdom. In the August 1958 Politburo meetings, it was decided that the steel production would be set to double within the year. Most of the increase coming from backyard steel furnaces. Millions of Chinese became state workers as a consequence of this industrial investment. In 1958, 21 million were added to non-agricultural state payrolls, and a total state employment reached a peak of 50.44 million in 1960, more than doubling the 1957 level. The urban population swelled by 31.24 million people. These new workers placed major stress on China's food rationing system, which led to increased and unsustainable demands on rural food production. As we'll see, this will have grave implications for influencing the Great Famine. With no personal knowledge of metallurgy, Mao encouraged the establishment of small backyard steel furnaces in every commune and in each urban neighborhood. Mao was shown an example of a backyard furnace in Hefei, Anhui, in September 1958 by Provincial First Secretary Zheng Shisheng. The unit was claimed to be manufacturing high-quality steel. Huge efforts on part of the peasants and other workers were made to produce steel out of scrap metal. To fuel these furnaces, the local environment was denuded of trees and wood taken from the doors and furniture of peasants' houses. Pots, pans, and other metal artifacts were requisitioned to supply the scrap for the furnaces so that the wildly optimistic production targets could be met. Many of the male agricultural workers were diverted from the harvest to help the iron production, as were the workers at many factories, schools, and even hospitals. Although the output consisted of low-quality lumps of pig iron, which was negligible economic worth, Mao had a deep distrust of intellectuals who could have pointed this out and instead placed his faith in the power of the mass mobilization of the peasants. Moreover, the experience of the intellectual classes following the Hundred Flowers campaign signs those aware of the folly of such a plan. According to his private doctor, Li Jiushui, Mao and his entourage visited traditional steelworks in Manchuria in January 1959, where he found out that high-quality steel could only be produced in large-scale factories using reliable fuels such as coal. However, he decided not to order a halt to the backyard steel furnaces, so as to not dampen the revolutionary enthusiasm of the masses. The program was only quietly abandoned much later in that year. This shift away from the farms onto pure industrialization through backyard steel furnaces meant that no one was taking care of the crops. Moreover, Mao had planned large-scale construction of irrigation projects without the help of trained engineers, which, as one would expect, were complete failures. Unfortunately, the amount of labor diverted to steel production and construction projects meant that much of the harvest was left to rot uncollected in some areas. The exact number of famine deaths is difficult to determine, and estimates range from upwards of 30 million to 55 million people. 
What is known is that the failure of agricultural policies, the movement of farmers from agricultural to industrial work, and weather conditions led to millions of deaths from severe famine. Many also died from quota-based executions instituted by government officials. The economy which had improved since the end of the Civil War was devastated. In response to severe conditions, there was a resistance among the populace. The effects on the upper levels of government in response to the disaster were complex, with Mao purging the Minister of National Defense, Peng Du Huai. In 1959, the temporary promotion of Lin Biao, Liu Xiaoqi, and Deng Xiaoping, and Mao losing some power and prestige following the Great Leap Forward, which led him to launch the Cultural Revolution of 1966. This concludes our segment on the Great Leap Forward. I will leave you with a quote from Chang and Holiday. Quote, Mao had actually allowed for many more deaths, although slaughter was not his purpose with the leap. He was more than ready for the myriad of deaths to result, and had hinted to his top echelon that they should not be shocked if they had happened. <laughs>